a really random thing to start with, and I can't remember whether I told you, but I suddenly felt the need last night that I had to tell you if I hadn't told you. Did I tell you that I bought the Wimbledon oven glove because you told me it was the best value thing in the Wimbledon shop? You did tell me that. I did tell you and that. I, I stand by it. I actually don't own a pair myself, but um, I stand by the best gift to buy. Uh, with the Wimbledon shop and we get a bit of a discount don't we do we no there's a day they do like a a day or a morning or something they say if you come between 10 and 12 if you're part of the media you get sort of a 20% discount or something so you can go and I'm sure the oven gloves will clear out I couldn't remember if I told you and I was using it last night and I thought actually it's it's good it's sturdy it's I like it and I couldn't remember and the other thing I was thinking that we might end up having a spin-off podcast I don't know the name of it yet but we're both going through at different stages looking at schools and our conversations have gone from purely being about tennis and some other bits to talking about schools and distances and what we look for and I think it could be a really good sort of sideline spin-off podcast looking at schools. Yeah it's it's like a full-time job don't you find for for a period of time a short-term (laughs) full-time job but it's um yeah I mean you're a little bit ahead of me but it's amazing isn't it I mean we live what an hour away from each other and yeah. the systems are just entirely different. So as oh, in crazy. your children change schools at different ages to when it's my ridiculous. children will change schools. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, think it's mad. I think we're in the minority. We have, yeah, this three tier systems at the end of, end of year four, they have to move and you're thinking, ah, oh. so we are getting close to the deadline of when we need to submit our choices. And, ah, oh, it's just, ah. Uh. But um, yes, no, that could be a sideline, but... As it is, there is so much to talk about. It's one of those podcasts. I think I just need to like throw things at you and you need to talk about them because I don't even know what order to put them in. But I think I'm going to start with, actually, this wasn't the most, this is the second most recent thing, is the Australian Open is starting on Sunday. So two of the four will now start on a Sunday. Yes, yes. Let's just sort of, we should just machine gun, rapid fire. Yeah. Everything. Um, I'll, I'll try and keep my, my answers snappy. Um, yes, Australian Open, Extra Sunday. Well, we've had it at Roland Garros for quite a lot of time. Yeah. Um, I can't even remember when we didn't have it at Roland Garros, to be honest. Do you remember when it came in? Gosh, I no. can't remember. No. no. Long, well, that's a long time because we've both been involved in Roland Garros for a while. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, yes. So, I mean, look, you can totally understand maximising the weekend. Um, you know, players are there for... Uh, a long time I suppose preparing having an extra day you've got a lot of matches to get through in two days so that just eases up the schedule a little bit although I always point to the fact that Wimbledon has been able to do it where you cannot play past 9pm there are no such thing as floodlights I know there are now on centre and and one but as in historically it's always been fine we now have a limit on how far the last set can go the third sets or, or fifth sets and um yes so it's not really to ease the schedule i don't think i think it is pretty much to say we can do an extra day and here it is we can sell extra tickets we can have an extra day on tv it's an increase revenue so the first round will spread over three days and i do find with roland garris the first round goes on for a long time doesn't it <laughs> you feel like we're st- still <laughs> in the first feel, round if you're working on it it's suddenly three weekends and that just makes it three if Sundays. If you're if you're if you're away from them, I remember whenever I check into the hotel at Roland Garros and I get there a little bit earlier anyway. They say, "Oh, you're here for I don't know twenty one nights." You're like, oh. <laughs> just and they're like, "Oh, okay." And I'm like, "That's a long time because it, it is those three weekends." And I think that look, look maybe 
you know, since during COVID, your Tennis Australia spent a lot of money. Remember when they had to book all the hotels and they had to get everyone in and keep everyone apart? And and you're right, this will bring in an extra day's TV revenue and ticket sales. But I just think it isn't it crazy how we talk about the tennis calendar that doesn't stop. And all of a sudden, Masters, most of the Masters have gone to 10 days. And, and Shanghai started this morning. I mean, and as we said, that's been desperate to, to get its 10 days. It's now got it. So we've got these Masters coming in at 10 days, a majority of them. We've now got two slams going the extra day. I mean, it just, it, it, when's it going to stop? I mean, everything's just getting longer. Yes, and I'm not sure where the desire for things to be longer is coming from other than <laughs> people who are running the tournaments, their desire for more revenue um yeah it's it's difficult because you know look you look at the schedule at um at shanghai and it there are no stars playing so you know it's it's fascinating isn't it because it's not like we're getting more the tournament is longer but we're not seeing the top players play more Mm. you know you're not seeing more of what you want really want to see you're seeing um just a diluted sort of first round be just much more spread so you know it's not like the schedule is oh wow I mean by contrast Beijing this week which is I've been working on Beijing I've got the final today Medvedev and Sinner the most outrageous draw you could ever imagine I think it's one of the most the strongest draws in 500 history I think I believe there was one in Dubai or I can't remember where it was but somebody posted it on on Twitter that was also ridiculous but um, it, to be seeded you have to be top 10 for a 500. <laughs> I mean, an opening <laughs> round was world number three, Daniel Medvedev, against world number 13, Tommy Paul. It's First amazing. round of a 500. It was just absolutely bonkers. But you know what? The schedule was just packed. It was coming thick and fast. It was just, it was so, so great. You know, all the time, it, you know, it didn't matter where you looked, something amazing was happening or somebody brilliant was on. It was just, you know, it just had that real buzzy feel to it. So, you know, look, okay, it's it's the thing with the extended masters is that it dilutes things all the way through because it gets staggered all the way through. It's not like I suppose I don't mind it so much with the slams because it's just the first round that gets a bit diluted and there are no buys, so everybody's yeah. sort of in action anyway. Although I can tell you, no player wants to lose on the Sunday. That's the thing because <laughs> no it's one wants like, to play a lose. It's almost like they haven't even remember the Masters. I remember in in Monte Carlo there'd be sort of two or three matches on the Sunday and someone would lose and you'd, you'd forget this person was playing, let alone they lost. It. It's almost like they lost before the tournament started. Yeah, it feels that way as well. That's- <laughs> That's how it feels. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I don't know. It, as I say, it doesn't really impact the draw or the matches that we're going to be seeing. We just have Sunday where we're going to have some more matches. So, I mean, for me, it doesn't really make much difference. If it's going to bring more revenue to the tournament, great. You mentioned you're doing the finals day, Medvedev against Sin. It still feels weird, the finals on a Wednesday, because Wednesday is when I put my bins out, and Wednesday is not the time when we have these finals because of when it started. Um, And we were chatting yesterday. As soon as I saw the result, I wasn't able to watch it. I was kind of dashing around doing sort of children's stuff. And I saw that Sinner had come through against Alcaraz. Now, this is the rivalry that is being built up. This is the rivalry of the future. This is going to be the most amazing. This already is the most amazing rivalry if you believe what you read. And I saw that Sinner had come through. And immediately I said to you, I need the match. I need the match debrief. I need to know how it played out. And what was interesting for me is your comments you then made regarding to this being an amazing rivalry. It's complex, isn't it? It, 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 Because... 
in terms of what they achieved, there's no rivalry. And Sinner said this, of course. I mean, he's not come anywhere close to what Alcaraz has achieved. Alcaraz is a, a double Grand Slam champion, was world number one for a long time. You know, it, you know, Sinner made his first semi-final of a slam this year at Wimbledon, and I don't think he beat anybody ranked inside 40 to get there. So, you know, it's... Look, he's made lots of other quarterfinals. That's not a slight on his level. I'm just saying it's not like he was beating phenomenal players uh, to get there. But, you know, grass possibly a, a you know a difficult surface for him, particularly with the movement. Um, but when they're on the court, it's really fascinating because there is a real trouble that Sinner causes Alcaraz. And I think tactically, this is a bit of a nightmare matchup for Alcaraz. I, he absolutely struggles against Sinner and Sinner has a game plan that works. Um, interesting after the match, Sinner said, oh, you know, each time I play him, I try to add an element that's a little bit different, something that I think is going to work. And you could see how Sinner was completely frustrating Alcaraz. However, this is not Alcaraz at his best. He did not play particularly well in the match. He has not really played that well, bar, I suppose, the final in Cincinnati. But even all the way through the US Open, he was sort of coming through matches not looking, you know, brilliant. And you expect this from somebody of his age. Of course you do. Um, But it feels like it has just plateaued a touch. And, you know, it's a huge credit to him that he is still really achieving phenomenal things. But, um, you know, like even in the match, you think about... Um, I mean, his his general level, lots of unforced errors, you know, missing second serve returns, you know, you know, some just sort of for him basic counter punching forehands. It wasn't that Sinner was making him uncomfortable. He just was a bit off. Um, but then there were other elements where it is really tough for him against Sinner. What Sinner is able to do is he can bring the match really narrow. He plays with so much extension in his shots, uses his long levers and he really penetrates the court and he's what he does is he pushes Carlos Alcaraz back moving on that backwards diagonal um, say to counter punch his forehand but he doesn't give him much width with it and I think Alcaraz is used to counter punching a forehand from pretty much on or just past that singles line and he's got so many options but you take him a meter inside and he doesn't really have a lot he can do from three meters behind the baseline he looked rushed he looked uncomfortable he was pretty grouchy all the way through um the match so there's it's always difficult I think to decipher how much somebody is playing badly and how much the opponent is making them play badly and I would absolutely attribute it to probably being 50-50 definitely Sinner frustrating Alcaraz and I think he will continue to do that in their matchups however if Alcaraz was feeling a little bit better about his game I think he would have been able to deal with it um, as it was uh, he wasn't able to and then at the beginning of the second set the first set was on a tie break beginning of the second set Sinner was outrageous he was so so good the quality that he was producing was absolutely sensational he was clubbing the ball like just four five six seven shots and Sinner had such a great mindset he didn't care how long the rally took he didn't care how much Alcaraz defended and he nailed the ball you know hacked it up high in the sky and he had to hit bounce mash after bounce mash he just didn't care he was like cool I'll just do another one he had such a great mindset so it was uh, it was amazing from Sinner and Remember, Sinner, the guy, in the round before, had his head in a bin throwing up halfway through the match. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> unbelievable. I, I think what's really interesting, what I really admire, one of the many things about Alcaraz is his honesty. Remember when he, he cramped at Roland Garros and he was he doesn't hide from it. He's very honest. He he says how he was feeling and what he needs to do. And, and after that defeat, he came out with some quotes and he said he needs to learn if he wants to be 
Yannick Sinner, he said, against players like Yannick, if you don't take advantage of those opportunities, it's harder to win or stay ahead on the scoreboard. He played a great level of tennis. It forced me to change my game a little bit. I couldn't do what I always did. I tried to play deeper, but I couldn't. I tried to play with another tactic, but it didn't go well in that part either. This is another thing I'll need to learn. And then he said, in the second set, I was mentally out of it. I was complaining too much, something that makes it difficult for you to play or be at your best level. And I, I love how he doesn't need to tell us all that, but I love the fact he tells us all that. Yeah, and it, it is it, that's exactly what we saw. Huge credit to Sinner for frustrating him, not allowing him to play in a certain way because the quality of Sinner's shots was so excellent. Um, but on another day, another Alcaraz where he's feeling good, he would have been able to deal with it. Um, I can imagine him coming back in the second set, lifting his level, being able to find, like work it out and find a way through. But on that day, he just wasn't able to. Don't know whether he's starting to feel a bit tired. I mean, he's won a ridiculous amount of matches this year. He's still incredibly young um, or what the deal is. But um, yeah, it's always fascinating, I think, when they're on they're on the court together it absolutely brings the best out of Sinner which is great and you know if we could see that Sinner which I think we will he gets better and better every year more and more then um, you know that's when it's really exciting yeah I think it's really and and Daniel Medvedev I love Daniel Medvedev I, I love his personality I love the fact that he just does his own thing he does it his way and and look he loves the hard courts how often have we seen him thrive at, at this stage of the year on these courts and he he for me is you know, we were looking for those personalities to come through when the big three finally departed and they are starting to depart. I love, I think Medvedev is so good for the game. I love every, I love his unorthodox style of play that you speak to coaches, speak to people like yourself, say, well, I wouldn't teach that at all. I like the fact to be the villain. I like the fact that he just works through things. And I, I love the fact that he will ask these guys questions and, and he will push these guys. He's so good and he's just played so well. I mean, that semi-final against Alexander Zverev was such a good level, such a good level. I mean, you're watching that and you're thinking, oh, I mean, I don't I, I don't think that Sinner could beat him if he played like that. Maybe he won't play like that today in the final, who knows? But Medvedev, honestly, it was, I mean, it was four and three. It felt so much tight. I think it was four and three. I'm plucking that out of my memory here. Um, but it was so, it, it felt, so much tighter than that. Um, yeah, he was, I mean, he was just rock solid. Absolutely rock solid. I think he's he's phenomenal. And he has this weird thing. I'm sure people have seen it on social media where he's won 20 titles all in 20 different places. He's never won the same title twice, which is so weird. If you think like Sitsipas has two Masters titles and they both came in Monte Carlo. Um, like he's won so many Masters events. He's, he's won everything. Beijing, he hasn't won in Beijing. Why not win here? You know, <laughs> I, think, I think he said that this is the last chance to add a new one to his collection. So... Um, and obviously it is not deliberate, but it's just funny, isn't it, how it works out? Because so often you get players that love going back to a tournament. But for Medvedev, perhaps he just likes the challenge of a new place, new surface, new balls. He's been complaining about the balls all week, but he seems perfectly fine. Uh, he's into the final. And uh, yeah, I, I think he's the favourite. Ah, uh, now balls. It wasn't going to be my next subject, but as you bring it up, it is going to be my su next subject because uh -huh. it's been chatted about largely. We had the, the women talk about the US Open because the first time they were using the same balls as the men and they've never used it. We, we had that discussion. Now I think it was Zizou Berg started off, Vavrinka was backing him up saying there needs to be more consistency with the balls. Fritz, Taylor Fritz said he's been dealing with wrist issues since the start of the US Open because of the ball changes, three different balls in in three weeks. So where do you 
sit on the amount of changes there are with the balls and and how how do they cause these problems in terms of is it something they need to do changing the stringing of their rackets? Do we need to have more consistency with the balls? How how can this be leveled up? Because there's an awful lot of players saying that this is causing an awful lot of problems, or are they just complaining too much? Well, they do complain too much. <laughs> in general, they do. Um, but look, the balls it is a bit of a problem, to be honest. Um, I think changing balls is a big deal. You get, you do get a lot of wrist injuries, arm injuries. You've got to change string tensions. It, it can be really, really hard on the body. Um, but you're also changing surfaces and conditions. And if this doesn't happen at all, and I'm not suggesting it does, but if they were picking the balls most appropriate for the conditions and you know the surface and everything coming into it and and we had a lot of changes because of that then it wouldn't be so bad <laughs> but they're not they they're changing the balls because of that's who they've got to deal with and each tournament does it differently and it's very frustrating because very often the balls are not suited to the courts at all um you know look the one uh, I'm maybe being harsh because there might be another period of time, uh, sorry, another block in the calendar that does it really well. But the one block that does it really well is the grass court season. So all of the grass court events in Britain, which is a lot of them, I'm not talking about Berlin women's event or Halle. I'm actually not sure what balls they use there, but I believe it's not the Wimbledon balls. But Queens, for example, Edgebaston, Eastbourne, they all use Wimbledon balls. And it will be next year at Queens, you'll be playing with Wimbledon 2024 balls. It will be written on it and that you will then use at Wimbledon. I believe. I'm pretty sure. Um, anyway, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Um, Love this. And that's sort of what you want for so- just a chunk of the season to have the same ball. And then, yeah, sure, you're going to adapt to the conditions a little bit different from, from tournament to tournament, but at least you've got a run of like a month with a particular ball. And it would be good to see that, I think, a little bit more um uh, really, as I say, there are periods of time, you know, sometimes the US Open series used the US Open ball, but then I think they had a deal with Penn, so that went out the window. You know, the slams have a different, have a deal with certain balls and the ATP has, you know, it, it's just, and then the tournaments are their own entity, so they decide they want to do something different. So it's all, it's just really, it's a really scrappy element. It would be nice to see a little bit more unity and planning on it. You know, look, it's always really been this way. The reason players are complaining more is because, you know, the game's just getting more and more physical. So, you know, is the, the match is getting more? longer. Is it because there's there's less recovery time and there's more tennis to be played as well? Is it players will will have a racket strung how they like a racket strung and they might adapt a little bit to the balls, but but could injuries be prevented if there was more attention taken to the stringing of the racket depending on the balls and the conditions, or would they do that anyway? Um they do that anyway. They'll be changing it every every tournament they go to. They'll be using a different tension. Um, they won't change strings because changing strings is the number one thing you can do to hurt your wrist. If you, it, it takes a, you know, it's it's a real problem. Um, so you, that's what you don't want to do that week to week at all. That's even worse. Um, but you would change your tension a, a little bit to deal with it. But I don't know if it's about playing more. I think in general we're seeing players play less and less in terms of the weeks that they're out, the top, top players, the weeks they're out on court. But um, I think it's more just the matches are longer. It used to be an hour and a half was an average sort of match length. Now it's two hours. The rallies are longer. It's more physical. There is just more repetition in a single match than it's just yeah as I say longer rallies less aces slower surfaces so um, it's just harder work playing a tennis match than it used to be 
But it doesn't seem like this could ever be sorted if a big thing is about the deals they have with a particular ball to play, even if it's not suited to the surface. That's not going to change. A tournament isn't going to say, well, it will take, I don't know, less money and use this ball. Although maybe they should if they're thinking of the player. So I don't really see how it can ever, it can ever get better. Well, it's it's for really the, the governing bodies to step in, isn't it? And for, for um, I don't know, maybe the USTA to come together with ATP and WTA and say, right, for the US Open series, for all of those tournaments, we're using US Open balls, you know, through to the end of the US Open and and trying to make sure that that is financially viable and, and makes sense. Maybe actually the USTA, because they run... US Open, of course, it's their tournament. Maybe that's just part of the deal with Wilson for their balls at the US Open is that you will you will wrap it into that, these tournaments and a, a fee for them as well. So, you know, there's definitely ways to ease it up. You're, you're never going to have one ball through the year. That would be madness. Um, you know, the difference in balls is absolutely, it's huge, really it is. When you're, you're slamming them around at that sort of speed, you know, all small differences really get sort of exaggerated. Um, but yeah, the difference between, say, a Wimbledon ball and then like a pen ball it's just I mean it's like a different sport it's uh it's mad and then obviously you've got altitude you've got all different sorts of things uh, to deal with so there's definitely a way to do it better um and I can understand players complaining I suppose um there's always a balance to be found isn't there between making money and uh, looking after players but I tell you what we're not going to swing around to it again but if we touched on it then well maybe the top players are playing lesser that should protect the bodies and only what last week we were talking about performance buys which is encouraging players to play more if they want to get the performance buy to get in the tournament so it feels you know we're adding days onto tournament we're bringing in performance buys to play more to get into more tournaments players are complaining about the bodies I I don't know it feels it feels really complicated it, but it I feels... think the thing is is you know I've been reflecting on the performance buys again and just very very quickly I know we've got lots of other things to talk about but I do think that that is an example of finding a good balance between the revenue that is required that they need to drive and protecting the players so saying to Rebecca okay you don't have to come and play the mandatory event but we were planning on selling the fact that you as a Grand Slam champion were coming to play this mandatory event. So we're going to get one more performance out of you in Tokyo instead, which is definitely much easier for the player as a choice, you know, to play an extra match in Tokyo against Noskova than having to go to Guadalajara to play a Masters event. They say, that's cool, but we're still going to get your sort of appearance fee and drive revenue out of that. You're going to be out on court for one more round. Like, I, I, I get it. Something that we... I don't know, can we say we disagreed on this? Did we sort of friendly disagreement? Was the news that Wim Fissett had left Jung Shin Wen to return to be coach of Naomi Osaka? And I was distraught. I was reading the comments from Jung and she was like, I cried and it came up at the US Open and, and he said, we just don't click, there's nothing here. And I... I understand, but I'll never forgive him. I was quite distraught and I was sending you messages and screenshots saying, David, this is awful. How can this happen? You were like, and of course he did. I was like, oh, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Yeah, I was sort of telling you to get a grip, really, wasn't I? (laughs) You were. (laughs) In my lovely way. That's very nice about it, though. Um, But yeah, it's just business. Like It's it's just business. It's just being professional. You're not here to make friends and... 
and loyalty. Where does where, you're you're basically telling me that if someone dangled a really attractive podcast in front of you, you might leave me because that's because that's business. Not that this is business, but I mean, it's just oh, I can't. I, oh, so I yeah, you're saying so if that was the equivalent of a Naomi Osaka, the highest earning female athlete on the planet. So so if it was an equivalent and saying so I could would. get a cut of that, you would. Oh. <laughs> this I don't know. <laughs> this, Look, it's, this is it's this is it's brutal. business. I'm afraid, oh. and uh, you know, I suppose if you just look at the contract of course he's broken out the contract almost certainly Naomi's probably paid him off uh, paid off the the contract for him because there would be some sort of financial penalty for bailing out earlier I imagine Um, and and you know he was working with Osaka before she obviously went away for a little while Um, he he would have known that's what he wanted to do sure he wouldn't have told Jung Chin Wen about that because who knows when Osaka's going to be back Um, you know you can't rely on that Um, I personally don't think he's done anything wrong. I don't know how it's been dealt with. I mean, you know, maybe he wasn't very nice about it, which seems a bit unnecessary. But I sort of assume the conversation is just sort of like, look, I've had this offer coming from Naomi. I can't turn it down. I've enjoyed our time together. And off we go. Yeah, but it was weird looking at looking at some of the quotes. And obviously this is Zheng Xinwen giving us the conversation. And I, I have no reason to say that she would make up the conversation, but whatever. But some of the quotes I read is... Uh, during the US Open, I knew he had had contact with the team of Osaka. Fine. Um, right after my match, he said to me he felt he had no connection with me, and he had never said that to me before. It, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like. Is there a good way to handle it? I don't know. I mean, you've been in a position when I imagine you were quite young when you've had to sack a coach. I mean, I can't imagine that's easy, right? Well, yeah. It's, it's, in this, well, it's the same both ways. You know, you, you could absolutely turn around at any time as the player and say, sorry, it's not working. People do it over breakfast and there's no real reason for it. There's nothing to justify it. You don't have to follow any sort of employment laws that you have to. In a, I mean, I don't know what it's like in other countries. I'm sure it's different. But in the UK, in an organization, it's really difficult to fire an employee. Like it's a long process. You can't just wake up one day and go, actually don't like the way you work. Would rather have somebody different in your position. It doesn't work like that. You know, we have a lot of protections and rights and stuff and you know and and we don't have that on the tour. And as I say, it works both ways. And one of the things that I'm I'm quite passionate about is you know, or not necessarily passionate about, but I passionately dislike how players are trapped in relationships with coaches because of the feeling of an emotional obligation, because they're friends or they're too close. And all of this is unprofessional, not saying it's illegal, not saying it's necessarily wrong, but it is not, it becomes something more than a professional relationship. And I, for example, stayed in a relationship with a coach for about a year longer than I should have because I just emotion. It was just too difficult. We were too close. You know, such a good friend of mine. It becomes dependent, and a lot of coaches play on that. They deliberately do it, uh, particularly with young female athletes, and they make you dependent. And actually, the coaches that are normally the best normally the most successful but the most vulnerable are the ones that make players feel independent and make them feel empowered and that they can do things they don't need the coach as a crutch they often end up getting fired after a great run of success whenever you see a coach get fired after a grand somebody's won a grand slam or got to number one or broken through the coach will turn around and ask for more money and the player will go oh no but I don't really need you 
which means they've done their job really well. It's such a weird thing. (laughs) But then a lot of coaches don't want to do that because they don't want to lose their job. They want the security and they feel out of control because they're being hired by a teenage girl, ultimately, and they tend to be 45-year-old men. And they, they do this stuff deliberately. They sort of worm their way into your life so that you'll stay with them, right? So that's one thing. So then you can't, like... I'm so anti that. I'm I'm so all I want is for coaches to behave professionally, like turn up, improve them, get them better at tennis and go away. <laughs> like that's that's your job. You know, nothing else. Um and I I hope that more players will have that. Of course it's difficult with traveling and stuff. I get it. There's there's other things that need to be taken care of as well but then you know you can't have it both ways you can't then have a player saying how could you do this to me how could you leave for a better offer how could you make this professional decision purely professionally don't you care about me well not like I want a world where people act professionally at all times because I think it screws over the teenage female players more than anyone and sometimes the male players as well more than anybody else and unfortunately you can't have it both ways you can't then sit there and go how dare you do this to me you've taken this offer from the biggest female sports star on the planet how could you i mean it's ridiculous but i I understand you're saying you don't want emotions to take over but how many times do we say when a partnership comes together they need to get on there needs to be a connection but then on the other hand you're saying no we don't need to have a connection we need to stay emotionally completely separate because at any time one of the parties can walk away and, and at that point like if I'm working with someone I, it's not the same as me I don't I'm not in a situation where I have a, have a coach or whatever uh, maybe an agent I don't know but you, I, I feel there needs to be it can't just be business but maybe that's a personality thing I, I think there would need to be a connection or trust and how do you how do you have trust if there's no connection there on I understand you're saying there's an extreme it can get to and I get that totally but on the other hand if I went into a business agreement with Wimphosate which I never would by the way because obviously <laughs> but I'd, I'd want to or, or with an agent or something I'd want to know there's trust there that they've got my back and I've got theirs and there'd be an open dialogue not this kind of underhand of are they always looking for a better offer? And of course, there is a better offer. Or am I always looking? We can talk about Radhikarni. Is she, if you coach her, is she always looking for the person to bring the next thing to her? So I don't know. Maybe I'm just, I wouldn't be cut out for this world at all. But I just, <laughs> I, I don't know. I feel that I'd need you there saying to me, no, you've got to do this. I, I don't know. But I, I don't see how it can work in that sense because there needs to be trust. And how can you trust someone if you're expecting them to leave at any second? Yeah, I mean, well... Yeah, there needs to be trust, but there, there isn't anything. I, I haven't read anything that, that seems that he's done anything untrustworthy, you know, as in. But you trust a, this person's going to. You, you've entered an agreement and you've obviously got a plan. I imagine it's a, a medium to long term yeah, plan. And it's of not what worked out. Do. It's not but, worked out. No, but it's not worked out from. It's nothing to do with her. It's not worked out because he's got a better offer. I don't see that as not working out. I see that as him just taking a better offer. It's nothing yeah, but it's to do not with what like, they were doing on the court. And I and I I do understand what you're saying to a, to a certain extent. But it's not like <laughs> he's hopping from like to like or he's hopping up a level. This is Naomi Osaka, and you can pledge as much loyalty as you want to anyone in your life. You could work for a company and pledge company uh, pledge loyalty to them. We could have this going with our our podcast and we're totally loyal to each other. But I'm sorry, if somebody's going to offer me £500,000, I'm taking it. And you should be happy for me. That's like, I'm not saying Zheng should be happy for Winverset. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm I'm just saying that it is very difficult. And uh, when you have 
professional you have to make professional decisions in a very sort of unprofessional environment and I don't mean that necessarily in a negative way but the fact is imagine if you know for people who have sort of regular jobs you go to the office you see people but then you have your life outside of it you don't have that in tennis your life is your work is your everything you're going to dinner you're on planes you're jet lagged together you're you know you're up in the middle of the night because you're jet lagged so you're playing cards at two o'clock in the morning in a hotel room or you're you know what I mean like there's all these sorts of things that happen that are really unprofessional they're not professional at all but that's just the world that you're in so we do have these real blurred lines but I very much see that that means that it is open to a lot of manipulation and most of the manipulation I see is the reverse of this where the coaches are trying to secure their jobs by getting too involved and too emotionally connected to somebody. Um, and I think that, you know, the other way around, I don't know. I, look, I'm sure he doesn't feel great about doing it. Um, but, you know... I, I don't think he minds, really. I think it just... Uh, 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 me, I, you, you did tell me to get a grip, and I was thinking, karma, there's karma in this world. It'll come I do round. understand. I don't think it's black and white, but I just really don't think that this is this is that bad. You know, I think it's well, unfortunate you... for her, um, you know, but I, I don't think it's that bad. She won gold at the Asian Games, just to say congratulations to her. Um, uh, we now know the price that you'd leave me for. Just want to say that. You've put it out there. Yeah, if anyone's said, out there with 500k. You, <laughs> you've just said the price you'd leave me for. And I can't you should be you flattered. Put, That's I a lot of money. I can't believe you put a price on our friendship and that you would leave me for that. And <laughs> I'm going to have quite a restless night tonight, but it's fine. <laughs> we, something, uh, <laughs> something uh, we've got through everything, which is amazing. And I know you've got to work soon because you've, you've got the Beijing final. Um, someone on social media had been listening, did ask about how the fellas, my boys, got on in their football trials. Sadly, the, the, they didn't get through. Um, and I've decided it's more painful for the parents than the children because it the is. boys, one was more upset than the other. One was very happy for his two friends that got in. The other one was had to come round to the idea. But then when they saw them, everyone was fine. Me, I was like, oh, it's, it's, a, it's a lot harder for the parents. I was like, why? And, I and they don't tell you why. I think that's the thing for me. You get no feedback or any, oh, it's a lot harder. So they've just, my friends just messaged with another trial for them to go to. And I'm kind of umming and ahhing um, because I'm like, as I say, it was, I think it was more painful for me than for them. But as we've talked about sport, it's the one area in life where you will fail. However good you are, Novak Djokovic is going to fail. You know, the, 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 the best in the business will fail in sport at some point. And, but I think at this age, it's harder for the parents. Oh, I don't know if you can give me any advice. I've, <laughs> I think I'm still thinking about it and it's a week later. Yeah, it's rough. It's rough. It's rough. I don't know if it gets better. But no, but the fellas are fine. They bounce back immediately. I'm going to get over it. Although now dealing with the fact that Naomi might leave me for a better offer. So <laughs> I'm not, I've, got, I've got a couple of things to be juggling here. But in the meantime, you're, so you're Beijing final. I, oh, I'm playing paddle tomorrow. Oh, yeah. It's very exciting. I'm back on the paddle court. I've been invited to a new paddle hub near me. Um, I'm, well, I thought I was just going down to say hi. Next thing I knew, I'm actually playing a match. So... I'm a little bit nervous now. I've oh, gone. And obviously paddles in four. So I'm not just playing against one person. There's three people I've never met. So I'm excited. Uh, and then I'm doing Hong Kong next week for the WTA. So I'm ex I'm still rugby world cup, still ticking along. That's kind of more weekends now, but um, yeah, I'm looking forward to doing some commentary uh, next week from home on a uh, good lineup. 
in Hong Kong. So what's next for you? What's what's after Beijing? Uh, I'm off schools. during Shanghai, so I'll just be yeah. uh, watching that one. Uh, and then very busy, very, very busy. Tokyo. You're really busy. You're really busy. Uh, I've got the 500 in Tokyo, which has moved because it was normally this week, same week as Beijing, but it's moved after Shanghai. So, yes, got 500 in Tokyo. Then I'm doing Zhuhai for the WTA, oh, the Elite yeah. Trophy. Yes. And um, Paris Masters and Turin Tour Finals. And that's a wrap so on the season. If, uh, and then I just go on a little bit longer because I've got Paddle in Milan. Yeah, Paddle season Billie... goes later, doesn't it? A little bit longer. i got Billie Jean King Cup Finals in Seville ah, in November. Yes. Um, and then some paddles spread around that. So if anyone is thinking of offering Naomi £500,000, just to let you know, she's booked up until 2024. Uh, she's very busy. Uh, <laughs> she, I think you'll she, find I'll drop all of my work commitments no, as she well. Would, that would be very unprofessional. <laughs> and we've just talked about having professional relationships. So it'd be very unprofessional of you to drop everything for £500,000. So Naomi will be available from 2024 for offers of £500,000. <laughs> And, and and there is no price that would take me away from you, if I could just let everyone know that. Oh, and on that at least I'm being honest. <laughs> so am I. Nonsense. And on that, <laughs> don't believe you for a second. <laughs> um, enjoy the final. I, I will. look forward, if, if we're still together, I look forward to having a debrief <laughs> on it. <laughs> I look forward oh. to the debrief next week. <laughs> See ya. Bye.